this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm amit barua your host for today afghanistan continues to hog the headlines nearly 2 weeks after the taliban drove into kabul and former afghan president ashraf ghani fled the country the world is still debating whether the taliban have turned a new leaf as analysts experts and journalists try to figure out the taliban's intentions wait and watch appears to be the default mode will the taliban actually allow women and girls to work and study will music be permitted will there be elections or will there just be a soft veneer hiding the very same iron fist that we saw in the taliban regime from 1996 to 2001 on your behalf i am going to pose these questions and more to michael sample a taliban expert who is also professor at the senator george j mitchell institute for global peace security and justice at queens university in belfast welcome to in focus michael thank you very much and thank you for these fascinating issues which you have raised michael uh, uh, you followed the taliban for a long time so i'm going to ask you a straight and simple question is the taliban going to be different this time from its 1996 to 2000 avatar the taliban in 2021 in all fundamental points are exactly the same taliban as in 1996 to 2001 they at least in terms of the the underlying philosophy of the movement the behavior of the troops on the ground we can talk about some of the changes but in terms of the experience of living under the taliban for the afghan people it's pretty much a repeat of what we saw in 1996 2001 so uh, a lot of people are using the term taliban 2.0 is that an accurate description then well during the insurgency as they were fighting to overthrow the afghan government i have heard a version of this label from many of the taliban what they talk about is the old emirate and the new emirate or sometimes the first emirate and the second emirate uh, so they they you know they do make a distinction between uh, who they were what they were before 2001 and after 2001 uh, yes i mean the taliban themselves recognize the uh, recognizes right, the need for a new name uh, but that does not mean uh, that the kind of you know behaviors for which the taliban were fa- were famous for in their first incarnation that they should have gone away in the new incarnation Michael the world has seen uh, quite terrible scenes of people hanging on uh, to aircraft wheels and so on and so forth and the crowds uh, seem to be still gathering in different places wanting to get out of Afghanistan i mean what does that uh, what does that signal to you is this a failure of uh, what we know or what we call the international community as a whole Yes I think that these the scenes that we've seen in Kabul uh, since the 15th of August uh, really tell us far more uh, about the crisis in international policy making than they tell us about the Taliban uh, to some extent you could imagine these scenes being uh, you know played out uh, in many places apart from Afghanistan um, you know when you think of it i mean that there's been a a massive a massive western airlift 
to shift people to Western countries. I mean, you know, that could cause a public order problem in, you know, in many countries that you and I are familiar with. Uh, it doesn't tell us about the popularity or unpopularity about the Taliban. For that, we'll have to look at the Taliban's own actions. Uh, this, uh, you know, this airlift was an action of, the, of the, the Western powers and some other countries working with them. It was not an action of the Taliban. And in your view, what were the underlying reasons for the speedy and complete collapse of the Afghan government as we knew it? Uh, a lot of people say is it's because of the negotiations uh, that the United States entered into directly with the Taliban in Doha, that they cut uh, the existing government out of it completely. So what do you think were the underlying reasons for the collapse of the Afghan government as we knew it? Uh, yes, there certainly, uh, there certainly is a list of factors which came together to create the perfect storm. I recently, working with a, a couple of esteemed colleagues, completed a, an assessment of the, the peace process as it was conducted from September 2018 uh, to just before the collapse. Uh, and in our, in our study, uh, you know, we find plenty of evidence to back up what some of these people have been, uh, have been saying to you. Uh, what we found was that whereas the, the United States had the option in preparing the way for withdrawal to work closely with the Afghan government to uh, prepare itself to stand up against the Taliban uh, and to pursue peace after the withdrawal of the, the, uh, the US troops. But instead of that, uh, the, the U.S. chose to deal with the Taliban, and in the way that they uh, they dealt with the Taliban, they didn't just like cut out the uh, the Afghan government. I mean, they inherently weakened it, uh, both in practical and in symbolic ways. In symbolic ways, it's all around legitimacy. The very uh, process of talking with the Taliban at a high level when the Taliban were steadfastly refusing to deal with the Afghan government uh, allowed the Taliban to present themselves yeah, as a kind of legitimate organization, at least legitimate in the sense that United States as superpower was obliged to deal with them. Uh, and then they uh, leverage that for their own propagandizing to the Afghan population. And the message that they put across was a victory narrative saying that we have reached an agreement with the United States in a sense that they, uh, that as they leave, they will hand us the keys of the presidential palace. No such deal actually existed. However, it's they certainly planted the idea of that uh, into the, the minds of Afghans, both civilians and members of the security forces. Now, that's just like a symbolic weakening. The marginalizing the Afghan government was, you know, de well, it demoralized the troops and the population, created an expectation that the uh, Afghan government might not be around for very long, which is very, you know, which influences decisions that, uh, security and political actors take while you know, while they're deciding what to do in a complex battlefield, but the the United States conduct of this so-called peace process uh, it weakened the Afghan government in very practical ways as well. The most obvious one was uh, the issue of prisoners, uh, which was really forced upon the Afghan government in the deal signed by the United States and the Taliban. Basically, that deal. Uh, you know, in that deal, the United States, which signed it, committed itself to use all its influence on the Afghan government to persuade it to let 5,000 competent prisoners out of jail as a sort of, you know, sort of confidence building measure. But actually, I researched the, what happened to those prisoners, and the vast majority of them went straight back to the battlefield. So instead of, as the Soviets did back in the 1980s, 
building up the Afghan government so that they would be ready to stand against the Taliban. In the name of a peace process, the United States actually weakened the Afghan government. And going on, you know, continuing on the sort of practical aspects of how they uh, they weakened them. Uh, also, they, af- the, the Americans after February uh, 2020, uh, they withdrew most of the air power, the, the air support that they had. They had very tight, very um, tight conditions uh, for providing further air support for Afghan forces. Uh, and so we got the situation where in um, in February 2020, to a large extent, the United States withdrew from the battlefield. From then on, it was actually watching what was happening. The Taliban stopped fighting against the Americans, but intensified their conflict against the Afghan government. This was all, These were all ways in which during 2018, 2019, 2020, the, uh, the seeds were planted um, uh, for this uh, Taliban operation. But I think we also have to look at the uh, what was happening inside the Afghan government. There were fundamental problems there, uh, which if they had been addressed, um, uh, you know, we wouldn't have been in the similar in the situation we are today. There were problems around the, the military leadership. There was far too much micromanagement um, going on from people right at the top. Really, they, uh, I mean, what they should have been doing was empowering the uh, the, the top leadership of the security forces to organise the uh, the defence of the country. For most of the period running up to this uh, collapse, Afghanistan operated without a defence minister. I find it absolutely mind boggling that a that a country in a survey sort of uh, live or die uh, struggle um, should operate without a defense minister. Uh, I mean, there was a real weakening of the senior ranks of the armed forces, which were appointments being made for petty political reasons. And some there were corrupt reasons uh, behind them, which essentially meant professional and reliable officers were not able to to get into the positions where they could actually command their men. Uh, As we got towards this of the you know, so the final push by the Taliban, as it became clear that the Afghan security force had basically been hollowed out, that they had, um, uh, that there, you know, there was uh, a lot of um, over-reporting of men, units, you know, just units were far weaker than they they should have been. Uh, the pretty much the consensus in Afghanistan was that. Uh, some of the the old sort of power brokers in Afghanistan who have the ability to mobilize men, men either for militias or to um, repopulate the armed forces, they had to be brought into action. Uh, the government was far far too slow to find a structure within which these people could work to provide the the resources that they required. I talked with many of them who said quite clearly, you know, we want to resist. We do not want the Taliban to return. That was also this, you know, the, the general popular feeling across Afghanistan. Resources were not available, and the structures were not available to allow these people to resist. In yeah, in many ways, what all this adds up to is saying that the um, uh, that the the American approach uh, in dealing with this issue uh, weakened the ability of Afghans to resist the rise of the uh, the, the Taliban. And so, as we look at this prospect of perhaps you know Western powers, particularly the United States, are withdrawing from the situation, is pulling out. I mean that they it's bizarre because you know. Uh, we still, as far as one understands, the United States does not consider it a desirable outcome. It's certainly counter to, uh, to U.S. objectives to see the Taliban in power in Afghanistan. And yet many of the actions which the United States took over the past few years actually made it easier for the, the Taliban to rise. And it made it very difficult or indeed 
uh, impossible for Afghans to resist effectively this uh, the rise of this Taliban. And finally, what I, I mean, I would say just just at the end, sort of bringing together the different strands, it we see the sort of very fact that the United States, in effect, you know, pursued a rather you know we can say a, a, a petty or very you know rather narrow interpretation of our political interests, essentially. Um, uh, delivering on these, you know, the promises that had been made in a couple of election campaigns that uh, U.S. troops would be um, extricated from uh, from conflicts. Uh, although there was in no way was you know was the engagement in Afghanistan in the last few years in any way a serious burden on the United States, but there was a drive for internal political reasons for them to um, uh, to get troops out. The way that the United States conducted itself in this withdrawal. Um, you know, essentially not not investing the kind of you know, time time and serious effort to uh, to work through what was going on, not properly um, anticipating the consequences of its actions. I mean, you know, display the sort of a you know a, a haste to extricate itself from old con- uh, conditions, and really uh, you know a, a worrying um, and you know an alarming non seriousness about the, uh, the the way in which it conducted its affairs. Um, so although we're although we're told that of course the United States want to focus on other strategic issues, um, if some of this bad policy practice is replicated in its sort of dealings on China, then things won't turn out well on that portfolio either. Right, Michael. Uh, now I want to get to the Taliban itself. I mean, we've seen them uh, in action in the last fifteen days, uh, where where they are, they appear to be the de facto authority. Uh, uh, one of the leaders of the Taliban, uh, Khalilur Rahman Haqqani, uh, said that the Taliban had no hostility towards uh, every, anyone and they've actually offered an amnesty. Do, do, you, do you believe uh, this offer of uh, amnesty uh, to the Afghan people, uh, Michael? I have verified multiple reports of uh, Afghans who were one way or another involved in the the fighting by the government forces against the Taliban, uh, who uh, believed that they were covered by this amnesty, who went home, who were taken out of their homes, uh, interrogated and shot. They, um, the amnesty is not operational in any meaningful way. Uh, the the kind of the kind of amnesty which is you know which is sort of like uh, you know told to the journalists. Um, but allows uh, Taliban in multiple districts uh, around the country um, to select those people that they blame for whatever losses the Taliban have had in a 20 years conflict and to, to, um, to deal out summary justice to them. That's not an amnesty. That's a, a PR. It's a rather weak P, uh, PR move. So no, there is no credible amnesty in Afghanistan uh, for opponents of the Taliban. Do you believe that the Taliban will give space to non-Pashtun minorities in their government? Uh, the the track record of this is absolutely disastrous. I mean, that the uh, the Taliban movement was established in 1994. It's now 2021. Uh, at no stage in the intervening 27 years has any uh, uh, non-Pashtun ever held any of the leadership positions in the in the movement, uh, and by that I mean, of course, the supreme leader, the uh, the deputies, the um, the the head of their councils. Uh, at no stage have any uh, any member of the the th- three out of the four largest ethnic groups had any serious position of authority. Uh, so, and on the basis of that track record, we can say that 
Uh, again, for the sake of sort of you know, some PR, it's possible that the um, the Taliban will come in with, with some decorative members of the minorities, uh, people who have little standing in their own communities and no authority inside the movement and announce that they are part of the government. That has been the pattern so far in the, um, the, the supposed leadership council in the Taliban. Uh, generally, we've had um, some people who are sort of lifetime lifetime members of the movement who've never actually been terribly powerful, who don't have much standing amongst their own people, but you know, nominally are Uzbek, nominally uh, nominally are Tajik. Uh, they get um, listed on the, sort of the, um, the the members of the the leadership commission, and then when you know, for those of us who track Taliban affairs a bit like the old sort of students of the. Uh, that you know, the Chinese Communist Party would uh, uh, would follow meetings of the Central Committee. Uh, you find out when there are serious decisions are being made, these people aren't present. So the track record of the Taliban in running their own movement has been to exclude uh, members of the minorities from power, but occasionally to parade people uh, symbolically to say, oh, we have someone from there. So I think if we're looking at the prospect for the inclusion of uh, so the, the power brokers, uh, of the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Hazaras, the people who, as it happens in elections in free Afghanistan, uh, have uh, consistently come out as the largest vote getters in uh, in parliamentary uh, elections. Um, the prospects of such people who actually have standing inside their communities being offered any meaningful post inside the Taliban, I would say, are uh, close to zero. Certainly track records suggest they don't stand a chance. Uh, Michael, Taliban spokesmen uh, have already been talking about the IEA, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. What kind of governance structure might the Taliban evolve this time? Will their Amir still be based in Kandahar? And will Mullah Baradar be the public face of the government? Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, come in on the point that you made about the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan being the uh, this is the moniker that the Taliban spokesmen are, are, you know, are choosing to use for their administration. This is significant because it comes, it goes back to sort of the assessment of the the peace process over the past three years. Uh, during the past three years, um, the uh, a whole line of Western diplomats, at the head of them, of course, the the, um, the, the U.S. envoy Zulmay Khalilzad, uh, told the world that the the Taliban had moderated their political stance. They were not seeking a monopoly of power in Afghanistan, and they uh, and. Uh, to sum up the way in which they were that they were not after a monopoly of power and they were prepared to associate themselves with other political forces in Afghanistan, we were told by that procession of Western diplomats that the Taliban no longer pursued the establishment of an Islamic emirate and they would at the very least they would drop that term because Islamic emirate means all power rests with the emir. Lo and behold, within ten days of the Taliban taking Kabul by force. Uh, the the term Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is you know is on the tongue of every uh, of every Taliban spokesman. In other words, the apparent political commitments or the political indications which the um, which the political team of the Taliban gave over a three year period to turn out to bear no resemblance to what the Taliban do in reality. We ought to take note of this. They. Um, so what you know, what does an Islamic Emirate look like this time? Uh, I mean, yeah, it, uh, it for it looks largely like what the Taliban practiced the last time round. 
Uh, and you know, you can say there's some, there, there's some, yeah, there's some positive and negative aspects of this. The first, when it comes to the the issue of the power of the of Emir, the Taliban have got uh, well well established doctrine on the um, on the power of the Emir. Uh, they um, uh, they work on the idea that of all all political authority rests with the Emir, highly centralized system. Uh, the you know he has he has the final say in all decision making. Uh, nothing is nothing is fully delegated. And so the um, uh, uh, and th- uh, uh, so that means that no no representative bodies which could have authority separate from the emir, uh, and also in terms of the issues of the you know, of uh, region regionalization versus centralization inside Afghanistan, it's all power to the center. Uh, so I think we should expect to see a a non-representative uh, form of government. They will maybe come up with some kind of advisory council, um, you know, based in based in the the ulama. Um, so a sort of a, you know, a a set of group a, a you know, group of clerics somehow selected by the Taliban to be clerics who they trust most. Um, they may have a sort of, they may have a consultative role on you know, on some issues, but again. Everything centralized within the movement, within the leader, and also in the center of the country. But you raise the issue of this of the uh, this is like the person of the emir and where the emir is going to sit is going to sit. Uh, actually, you touch on a rather sore point for the Taliban because although it's ten days since you know what many would say is you know even if it was achieved through a mix of you know deception, failures on the other side, exploiting power vacuum, and so on, still the you know the Taliban have moved uh, have pulled off something really quite remarkable. Now, with most political movements that you and I would be familiar around the world, within the first ten days after a glorious victory over a superpower, you would have thought that the supreme leader would at least have the Time to uh, to come up with a, at least a recorded statement um, celebrating the victory of his troops. We haven't had any such statement. That the uh, the the Taliban's emir uh, is uh, still not in the public eye and seems to have nothing to say about the victory. Now, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think as every day passes with uh, um, with this state. Uh, more people come to the conclusion. Well, that means that actually their emir, uh, you know, died some time ago and is simply not available to move to either Kandahar or you know, or Kabul. And I know that's the conclusion that even uh, many senior Taliban figures uh, in you know, in the you know, in the leadership um, they have reached. Um, so as the Taliban try to put together their new regime, uh, they you know they they face the challenge of how do they um, how do they select emir and emir. Um, at s- such a critical time, and I think when yeah, when you acknowledge that, I mean, they you know, without them ever having come out and said we lost our leader again, they um, suddenly they're in control of the country, uh, and they uh, they will have to make an arrangement for a new one. Realize that the yeah, this Taliban regime is anything but solid, and we should be absolutely clear: this is not the end of the story of this of the Taliban or Afghanistan. This is the opening of a new chapter. Um, yeah, and this is you could say this is the start of a revolution. Revolutions themselves quite often go through many upsets. One of the key upsets for the Taliban is going to be the struggle for power inside the inside the movement at the top between factions located in Kandahar, the, the factions. 
uh, more linked towards the uh, the east, Jalalabad and Peshawar. They, um, between people who've been doing some of the political work over the past few years, those who are firmly located inside the, the military, uh, there is a power struggle inside the Taliban which has to be sorted out uh, before they get round to picking an emir uh, and actually um, completing the process of, uh, of building a, an administration. An administration which, if as, it, as according to the current form of the Taliban, uh, exclusively consists of people who have been you know, loyal to the movement through the years of insurgency or who served in the administration pre-2001, this will be an administration which excludes something like you know, 98% of the population. Uh, and uh, administrations which have got such a narrow base and, we're itching, uh, and you know, which preside over activities which are unpopular to the majority of the population, in particular those which you know, are gifted with uh, one of the world's most spectacular economic crises, which is what seems to lie, lie ahead for Afghanistan. Um, you know, we shouldn't expect the, the, uh, the Taliban to have an easy job in consolidating their hold over the country. Right. And Michael, one other key question is this. Uh, what will be the Taliban's attitude towards a terrorist group like the Al-Qaeda? Well, depends on whether we're talking about rhetoric or we're talking about reality. Um, you know, with rhetoric, they, they generally have a very sort of a fine, uh, nuanced approach. Uh, that they, and this is one of the real difficult ones if you're a Taliban spokesman. If you're a Taliban spokesman, uh, you have to look towards, you know, t- to some extent, the neighborhood and certainly abroad and towards the United States uh, and yeah, and emphasize that we, of course, will not allow anybody to use our soil for um, you know, developing security threats against the United States or other countries. Um, so you give the implication that you are going to uh, clamp down on activities by terrorist groups like uh, Al Qaeda. However, at the same time, you've got to remember that after all, the uh, the Taliban is a militant Islamist group. Uh, it has its roots inside the jihad. I've always argued that actually the um, the Taliban movement, in a sense, is more Indian than Arab in the sense of its ideological heritage. Um, they, uh, uh, I mean, my research sort of uh, track track the uh, ideology of the Taliban sort of through the the Deoband link. Um, back to um, uh, some of the Indian ideas or the ideas of the Indian ulama uh, about the, you know, the the jihad against the the various non-Muslim powers in the uh, in the subcontinent. Um, now they, you know, and you know, if I'm right in terms of their subcontinental roots of jihadi thinking, or whether one believes that this is the more Middle Eastern and Arab influences you know, are prevalent, the point is, you know, the Taliban are a jihadi movement, a jihadi movement uh, which over the years has accepted the the bayat or oath um, of the uh, the Al Qaeda leaders. First of all, uh, Osama bin Laden, subsequently Ayman Zawahiri, uh, that they yeah, that. Uh, as far as the, the Taliban are concerned, through or at least through uh, key figures in the Taliban are concerned, uh, Al-Qaeda saw them, stood with the Taliban through the difficult years. The Al-Qaeda leadership is still present in Afghanistan and enjoys some degree of protection from the, the Taliban. This would be a very strange time for the, the Taliban to uh, part ways with Al-Qaeda. So, um, of course, there will be uh, there will be in the Taliban leadership a pragmatic wing who are saying, you know, we we desperately need to have um, improved international links. 
uh, so that we can you know, run our economy. We now have got a people to think about, 30 million people to feed. Therefore, we should not allow irritants like al-Qaeda get in the way, as they did in 2001, leading to the downfall of the Taliban. Uh, however, I mean, yeah, let, let's see which of them wins out. They, I think uh, for the moment, I think the, the tendency which would give sanctuary to al-Qaeda, um, allow them to share in the fruits of the Taliban great victory uh, and rely on you know, and PR and um, uh, the, sort of the essentially um, subterfuge um, to uh, avoid uh, too much reputational damage internationally. I think that's the tendency that's going to win. I've seen no evidence whatsoever of any commitment by the Taliban to take effective action against al-Qaeda or other uh, transnational militant groups. Time. I have one last question. In your view, what are the chances of uh, Western nations recognizing a Taliban government? Uh, I think it's very unlikely that there'll be a rapid move from Western governments to recognize the, the Taliban movement. However, I think that there will be tremendous pressure on the Western governments and countries in the region to have a pragmatic working relationship with the de facto Taliban authorities. There, there are multiple reasons why they will not move uh, quickly to recognize them. First of all, uh, this has been a violent takeover of power against the wishes of the Afghan population, against the, the wishes of the uh, regional powers and international powers, as stated on multiple occasions, as communicated to the Taliban, and frankly, uh, against the stated intentions of the, the Taliban in numerous in new, numerous events over the uh, past two, three years. Uh, so think, I think that uh, you know, whatever other compunctions there might be, the international powers will not want to be seen to uh, reward uh, this kind of military conquest. So they'll, they'll want to hold back on that. Also, I think it would be politically costly for anybody to get too close to the Taliban. We've already seen in the, you know, in this of the first uh, uh, 10 days or, or more of you know, Taliban in, you know, in power in Kabul and you know, consolidate themselves around the country. Uh, they're involved in numerous, numerous activities like the summary executions, the, the chopping off of hands, uh, which may be, may be symbolically important in local terms for some members of the movement, uh, but really are quite offensive to uh, many in the international community and are all going to be picked up by the media. So anybody getting too closely associated with the Taliban is going to find a backlash from the bad behavior of the Taliban, which will be widely reported. But there is an opposite, um, there's an opposite tendency, which is that you know, the Taliban are the de facto authorities. Uh, they are, although there are other, you know, there are um, uh, other actors still in Afghanistan, this is the armed resistance, but still the Taliban have most of the territory. Afghanistan is too big of a problem to ignore. It's the potentially one of the largest sources of migrants or refugees to the uh, European Union, uh, and yeah, and of course there's the uh, the counterterrorism issue, uh, multiple humanitarian issues. Therefore, I think that um, the 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 Western powers certainly will will not have an option of just keeping their distance and trying to freeze the Taliban out. They're going to have to find. Um, some more nuanced policy, uh, which allows them to, you know, to, to maintain pressure on the Taliban uh, towards an eventual negotiated settlement, which at the moment, of course, is stalled. Uh, they will have to find a, a way of avoiding rewarding aggression, which the Taliban have indulged in uh, you know, this month. 
Um, and they're also going to find a way to uh, engage with them uh, pragmatically um, so that some of the humanitarian needs in Afghanistan can be addressed and we can do something to, to mitigate the, the potentially large migratory flows. Michael Semple, uh, thank you for talking to the Hindus In Focus podcast. Thank you very much. Most welcome. I think this is a story which we will be returning to in the months ahead. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.